Welcome to CrossCast, where we discuss the modern relevance of the Bible from the Christian point of view. We shed light on subjects uncommon in the church and bring clarity to the gray zones and in all cases glorify God. So once again, welcome to CrossCast. Okay, everybody, welcome back. This is our episode on angels. We are continuing our spiritual warfare series. We are going to pick up now on the positive side, if you will, of celestial beings. So we discussed discernment, and then we discussed the devil. Then we discussed demons. Then we discussed Rev 12, which was that the war in heaven, which was where the demons meet the angels in this discussion. And now we're going to talk about angels on the other side. And there's so much content here. There's so much to say, so much to um, really pry out of the Bible. A lot of lines to be read between, if you will, to read a story and then pull the information out of it, of what it's saying about angels, much like we did in the episode about demons. So with all of that said, we're going to pick up right here. And Phil's got the first verse. Yes. And given the vast volume of information that we have, there's no way we can read it all and there's no way we can cover it all tonight. So we're going to try to paraphrase some of these stories, but there's an interesting passage in Galatians chapter one. And I want to start there. It seems very odd for this episode, but bear with me for a moment. So Galatians chapter one, verses six through 10, and it says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Now, this is a very interesting verse. And again, I wanted to read this because he says, if any other basically being, including an angel, preaches anything other than Christ, then let him be accursed. And we do know about Mormonism and in their doctrine in their philosophy and their belief beliefs they believe that there was an angel moroni or moroni depending on how you want to pronounce it um, came and gave this new information and the rest of the story type thing and it's completely false doctrine it's a cult and that's not the point of tonight but was there an angel was there a messenger and was that being imitating a holy angel coming across as godly. I think perhaps, you know, that's possible. That's plausible. Was this guy just, you know, completely out of his mind making up a story? I don't know. But the bottom line is, is that we have guidelines. This is the point. We have guidelines in the word of God of certain attributes, elements, signs, outward actions, things that they'll say and do that will verify where they're from, whether they're from darkness, wickedness, a fallen angel, or from righteousness, 
a holy angel, a godly angel. Which is what we talked about in episode one of this series with discernment is that ability to tell the godly from the ungodly. Right. And whenever we're talking about angels, this is a broad word. This is a broad noun, if you will. You hear people throw around the word angel. Oh, there's such an angel. Such and such passed away and now is an angel in heaven. These are all folklore, sayings, things trying to be nice to others. I get it. You know, people are trying to be sensitive whenever someone passes away to a grieving family. Uh, Someone is trying to compliment the behavior of, uh, say, a young person. Oh, she's such an angel. He's such an angel. I get it. But biblically, doctrinally, there are so many different beings in the heavenly realm. And we just kind of throw this, uh, we put this bucket together and we say, this is the catch-all and all these beings in here are all angels. And then we have two different types of buckets. We have the fallen angels, which we call all of them demons. And then we have all of the good beings and we call all of them angels or heavenly angels. Right. And that's not exactly accurate, but it's, I guess, accurate enough for us to kind of get the point across that we're talking about these beings beyond the veil, these beings in the spiritual realm. And so there are fallen angels and there are holy angels. I guess you could say they're both angels, but it's their position. It's their their status. Have they been kicked out of heaven by God himself or are they still in the holy service to our creator? That's basically the defining factor. Did they rebel against God? So with that said, there's different types of angels. For instance, there's seraphim, there's cherubim, there's archangels, There's beings that are called angels. There's principalities. There's dominions, thrones, powers, spirits. And we see these different names given to these beings throughout the text, Old and New Testament. They're referred to in different sorts of ways. But these are beings that we refer to and we just call them angels. Right. Because throughout the Bible, you see situations where they say, and one who looked like a man, talking about an angel, or they're described as like, a man with wings. They're not scary to approach. Yet then you get into the book of Revelation and John's talking about creatures with the head of a lion, head of an eagle, six wings, two they cover their feet, two they cover their face, two they fly. Looks nothing like a man. One of them did have the face of a man. But the body form doesn't. So you do see that there are different creations, different styles, different designs, all of which designed to serve God in the way he needed to be served when he created it. Yeah, and let's point to God for just a second in this. God is so amazing. He is such a creative God. And the beings, the creatures that we will be able to interact with in our future, it's going to be amazingly awesome and glorifying to God whenever we get to look upon, interact with some of these creatures of all different types. I'm not going to sit here and say, and even demean it and say, oh, it's going to be like a Star Wars or a Star Trek of all these creatures that interact in a civilization of sorts. It's going to be far greater than, than that. And it's all by design. This isn't an accident. It's all by design. And you have these different types of creatures. Again, we call them angels, but they all have their purpose of service around the throne or out in the whatever in the cosmos or coming to the earth and interacting with God's creation and his people and warring against the fallen angels like all these angels and creatures have their purpose their designed intent and it's amazing how God created all these diverse 
creatures. And again, giving them different names and different positions and different strengths and different types of authority. And I, I just think it's something that praises and honors God. Well, you see that here on the planet, you see this design of God with creatures. You know, he designs land mammals, sea creatures. He designs birds, the land, the sea, and the air. Every part of the planet is filled with different creatures designed a different way that live a different way. Fish can't live on land and mammals can't live at the bottom of the ocean with the exception of whales, but it's kind of a special case situation. A whale can't live in the sky though. Can't fly. It'll fall. It'll break. So you see the different designs with different intent in different places here with animals. Why would it not also be the same in heaven? Why would God only surround himself with miniature humanoids with wings and that's it. He's just lining up a bunch of man looking stuff and not giving himself a rich menagerie of differentiality. Yeah. But he doesn't have a clone army. They all exactly. look the same and there's trillions of them. He doesn't have a bunch of animals in heaven. Like you just mentioned on the earth. I think this is a, a scaled down version of what heaven must be like where you have all these creatures that we study in the animal kingdom, for instance. Right. And we look at these creatures here on the earth and we are all struck by how they're designed and their capabilities and how do they survive in these types of environment, whether tens of thousands of feet down into the depths of the ocean or high up in the mountains or in the hottest deserts or wherever. We're like, how does this creature, this little bitty thing thrive and have a family of sorts, you know, have offspring and procreate and the, like, where is the food? Where is the water? How does this thing live? You get to heaven. These creatures are going to be all over the place in heaven. And they're not just these animals. They are intelligent beings that communicate and worship and serve and take orders from God. And it's remarkable. We have these little glimpses throughout the Bible where we are seeing them interface in our realm, in our world that we right. can that we can see, we can interact with, we can receive information from, or that they show up in order to defend God's people. And we get these little bitty snapshots of them doing a task or this little bit of revelation that God gives someone that writes a book like John in the book of Revelation has some of these visions to get a little snapshot in heaven to be able to record what he sees. And even whenever he sees it, he's struggling to understand it and then let alone understand it, but then try to write it for us to understand. Right. It, it's going to literally blow our mind. We are going to be awestruck at what God has designed and who he has designed in his kingdom. And all of this to service him, all of this to glorify him. And then so also what you were saying, we can go through the book of Revelation and we see so many things that our angels are doing. You see the cherubim that are flying and just saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You see the angel that is guiding John as he writes and saying, come this way, now come this way. And then you see other angels doing all these other jobs. You see angels worshiping, you see angels serving, you see angels carrying the bowls, you see angels performing so many actions and kind of getting ready for this. There's a couple of interesting notes that I made. Um, one seraphim is like an upper echelon angel, which when you get into the meaning of the name and the descriptions and the folklore of it all, it's thought to 
look more like a snake with wings. Because again, creatures, we said they're not all man-like. So the seraphim are thought to be snake-like, which then if you have the situation of Satan was a seraphim, because we said he was like second only to God. So if he was an upper echelon seraphim, then he would have been a snake. And then when he came to the garden in the form of a snake, his angelic would have also been a snake. And then when God curses the snake, he's cursing the seraphim or that angel. That's entirely theoretical, but that's just one of those interesting little things that comes out when you start looking into the words. Right. And I Um, just want to interject whenever you look at Ezekiel 28, he's called the cherub. So there is this other title, if you will, or type given to Lucifer other than just saying, oh, he's an angel. So I agree. And to fully understand the hierarchy is kind of difficult from what we read in ancient texts. And right, we're to, never given a full hierarchy. That's right. And to try to dissect these different types, it exists because we have some glimpses, but to just have the full revealing of it, we struggle to see things absolutely clearly. Right. And then you have the question of what's the difference between a cherubim and a seraphim? Is it the role they play or are they different creatures of creation? Could they be the same thing? But like I said, serving in two different ways and it becomes a title more than a description or a name for their species, quote unquote, if you will, spiritual species, I guess you could say. These are all questions we can't answer about angels because quite honestly, angels just are not the point of the Bible. So why would they waste any time on them that are that's not needed? That's like the king of England writing a book and spending time describing the hierarchy and details of his serving staff. He might talk about their jobs or talk about times that they were used, but that's not the point. He's trying to talk about how he runs government. So that's why you don't see a lot of angels. They're just, they're not in that role. The Bible is not for that. Also with that, so when you look into the Old Testament, you see the building of the temple in the Old Testament. It's a lot of as in heaven, so be also on the earth. So everything that they're building in the, in the Old Testament temple is to be a recreation of what's in heaven. So the Ark of the Covenant, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, which is part of the temple, you have to have the Ark, it goes in the Holy of Holies, has two cherubs on top with their wings pointing up toward each other where they're both guarding the lid of the, the Ark. And so in my opinion, this is entirely an opinion piece, because of as in heaven, so on earth, I have a personal belief that there is a place in heaven because what's, what's in the Ark of the Covenant? It's the Ten Commandments. And then also, I believe, the staff used with Pharaoh, things like this. And so it's the commandments of God. And also, it is the Ark of the Covenant, the covenant that God has with God's people. So I have a personal belief that there is a place in heaven, in the temple, where there is God's covenant with his people and the laws that he has for them. And it is guarded by cherubs. I agree with that. We read that in Hebrews chapter nine about the things made with hands or copies of what is in heaven. Right. So I believe it's actually scriptural. And to a T we just have these again, man-made items to try to represent the real heavenly things of real angels, real archangels or real mercy seat, real law, the law, not tablets written on stone, but real law. It's a uh, very difficult and it's hard. It's hard to bring specificity of things beyond our realm. 
that we can't right. observe with our five senses and interact with measures of unit and weight because it's in a whole different dimension. So and, I agree with that. And that's how I like to kind of think about is if we have scrolls or in this case, stone tablets, because they were designed to withstand the length of time, stone tablets that are the 10 commandments or the commandments of God. And then you have a gold again, metal. So it's going to withstand time, a golden box. That is the ark or the representation of the covenant. If that's what we have here, Again, because like you said, this is kind of man-made, handmade, what we can do. In heaven, I see it as this very different thing, almost just like a, if you will, if you'll go with me on this, think of it as like a ball of light, or not even light, just a ball of glory. And it's like, what is that? That is God's covenant with his people. No matter what happens, that is unbreakable. That is the very word of God represented. And then again, cherubs guarding it. Just like we saw cherubim guarding the Garden of Eden and the flaming sword, not allowing anyone to the tree of life. So you see cherubim and cherubs, this hierarchy, this much higher, we guard the things that really matter. Those things that like are actually in God's house, like he, like this is God's possession. Cherubim almost seem to come off as like God's personal bodyguards. Like the big dudes you just don't want to cross. There's lots of little servant angels, warrior angels, archangels, messenger angels, angels with multiple wings that just fly around worshiping God. So you can call them worshiping angels, which again, is in the book of Revelation. And we talked about during prophecy, the six winged angels with the different mammal faces. So you have all these different types of angels, but cherubim seem to be the big guns. God is a God of creation. He continues to create. He does not run out of ideas. It's not going to become stagnant in heaven. We're going to have so many different things to look upon and interact with and new experiences. Again, all to glorify God. And the angels, the different types of angels, is a component of that creation that he has created for himself and for us to enjoy as well. So we wanted to try to work through different aspects of angels. And I think that's the best way that we knew how to bring this broad, huge topic to the table. Number one about angels is that we do not worship angels. Right. And that's a big one. It is because there are a lot of Christians without maybe even saying it overtly, openly, I worship angels. They are worshiping angels. So they're right. praying to angels trying to talk to angels, asking angels for assistance, having angel cards, trying to summons angels. And this is not biblical. Well, you see, and that also comes down to your definition of worship. It does not have to be singing a song to the angel saying, oh, how great and awesome you are, angel. But just the moment that you're esteeming an angel, that's the moment it becomes worship is when you're esteeming them. And attributing to them glory of any kind, even if they are radiating glory, because the glory that they're radiating is the glory of God, not of themselves. So the moment that you start positively attributing things to them is the moment that you're worshiping them. And so it really comes down how you define that, because you can make that statement and I can make that statement if we don't worship them. And somebody would say, of course I don't worship them. I only go to the church, light a candle to the angel and pray to the angel but I'm just praying to them. I'm not worshiping them. Never mind that prayer is a form of worship. 
because you are esteeming them by saying you are greater than me. Ergo, you can handle this problem and you should be taking that to God. Yeah, that's exactly right. We don't want to be confused. And again, that's why I said, we're not going to overtly say I worship angels through our action, through our belief system, through our philosophy, through our avenues and methods of the spiritual interactions that we try to have, we're now trying to communicate and channel through angels whenever we need to be going to God through Christ. Right. And that will always be the common thread throughout the entire Bible. Everything points to Christ. And whenever you have this issue, now you are beginning to worship something other than the creator. And so never forget this. Angels are a creature. They are created they are not the creator. Now, there is a very famous story that if you are a believer who's read the Gospels, you remember this story. It's in Matthew chapter 4. Christ is being tempted in the wilderness by Satan. And in Matthew chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, and he said to him, that's Satan saying to Jesus, and he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And now what are these things? It's the kingdoms of the earth, the whole world, all the authority. Satan was in charge. He still is of the earth. And he's saying, you come and you worship me. You put me first and I will give you all these things in the world because Satan knew that he was up against the Christ, the son of the living God. And so he's trying to tempt him. I'll give it all to you. Just put me first and every, you will be second in my kingdom, basically. And then Christ responds and he says, Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. So this is it. This is plain, simply put, clear as day. Jesus Christ says you will only worship God Satan is the fallen angel, and you're not going to worship angels. Well, and also this goes with our demons episode when we were talking about at the fall of man at the garden, demons kind of took over the planet. And we talked about how you see a demon over each kingdom and then other demons underneath them. So Christ is in a world, especially to him who has the sight of God, he sees this. He's in a world where every city has demons controlling the leaders and really kind of making the movements under the guise of man. And Satan says, look, you see the demons, you see all this. This is all under our control, under my control, me and mine. And I'll give it back to you is basically what he's saying. I'll give it back to you if you'll just worship. I mean, look, dude, everybody is worshiping. You got to remember you're in a world 2000 years ago when we talked about the worship of Baal with infant sacrifice. You can take it back to Greek mythology where you've worshiped everybody in the Mount Olympus. You can take it to the Roman mythology, which kind of stupid. They abandoned their own gods to take on the Greek gods, but the Romans had their own version of the Greek gods. Like Zeus and such. Yeah. Instead of Zeus, it was Jupiter. Instead of Aries, it was Mars, which is what the planets are named for is the Roman version of the gods. So you have so much worship of so many gods of demonic nations and he's saying, look, man, it's prevalent. It's everywhere. It's happening everywhere. It's sent, Look, just give me a little bit of it, and you can have it all back. Because you don't want to die, right? 
And Christ prayed in in the garden. He said, if this can be taken from me, take it, God, but not my will, your will. So he's like, you don't want to die, right? You don't want, we both know what's coming. You don't want to go through the dude, two seconds of worship. You can have it all. We'll pull out and head off to wherever we'll find somewhere else in the cosmos to go be. But Christ knows the plan. And he says, no, I will not worship you. You do not worship anybody but God. So this is the example of Satan trying to tempt Christ to worship him. And so you may say, well, of course, we're not supposed to worship the devil. The devil is evil. Okay. So there's another example in Revelation chapter 22 where we have a holy angel coming to John, the apostle John. In heaven. In heaven. And he's having all of this revelation, this revealing knowledge from God. The book is called Revelation, namely because there is a revealing of who Christ is and a revealing of Christ back to the earth. And then the Apostle John worships an angel at his feet because of the glory of God. And this happens, and you're thinking, come on, John, man, you were with Christ. You had the vision of Christ. You fell at his feet as though dead in in chapter one, and now you're going to worship this creature? Fumble at the one yard line. Read all of the book of Revelation. And just see what all John looks upon and he hears, he sees, he feels, he experiences. and The throne of God. Yeah, and then he gets to this point at the end and he's worshiping an angel. And you just feel like, God, come on. <laughs> and I think what we're overlooking is the power, the glory that God has designed in his creature to, to bring glory back to him. And then John being a man... He gets caught up in just how little and how small and how incapable and impotent that he is in compared to this angel. And so I think he's just overwhelmed and he just begins to praise this angel and its power and his glory. And he's bowing down to honor and worship, almost like paying homage to a, a king or something and worshiping a, a crown or something that's on the planet. And the angel's like, stop it. No. You will only worship God. I am a fellow servant. Do not do this. So then you have this holy angel forbidding worshiping angels, period. Well, and also you have to realize what the glory of God is. It's not just light. It's light mixed with power. So it's like light with electricity in it. So when it hits your body, you feel it. It's not just, oh, there's some light. It's not just photons. It's glory. It's power. And it's coming off the angel. It's resonating throughout heaven his body is being afflicted by it. when christ turns to him he falls as if dead because his body can't handle it and christ has to strengthen him and bring him up because the glory when it hits you it is something different that we have never experienced and you don't know what that does to you and so when you're experiencing in that moment it's so easy to give in that's right and we have more instructions romans chapter 1 verse 25 it reads For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And then to put a bow on this this whole package here of don't worship angels, this is very clear. Colossians chapter 2, 18 and 19. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. 
here where it says the worship of angels, again, going back to what we said in demons, that there are gods, if you will, or deities on the planet that are represented by statues of gold or statues of wood or stone or whatever it is that we've done, but they are the representation of a quote unquote God. And there is a demon behind that God, which is leading people to worship it in a certain way. So they'll make a carving. Like let's take Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. The King makes a golden statue and says, when the music plays bow before it, why you just created it. But there's a demon behind him saying, you will create a likeness. I will inhabit that likeness and you will cause people to worship me. There will probably be these supernatural powers, demonic powers that are going to be associated in that activity. Exactly. You know, there's going to be these elements that, well, no, there is something special, quote unquote, about that activity and worshiping this idol or this image or the spirit behind it, but it's not the creator. It is not God. It is not divine. It is forbidden and it does rob us of our reward. As we just read in Colossians chapter two, we see it in all forms and fashions. I think that's the point that Adam and I are trying to make is there is that there's all kinds of ways that people get into this angel worship. Right. And the object of our worship is God. That's it. Just keep it simple. Not God and, oh, we pray to Mary. We pray to saints. We pray to angels. It's all these higher beings on the good side. That's not acceptable. Only God gets the glory. That's the key. That is sound doctrine. And I think Christians who are weak in the word of God, they think that everything good on God's side gets glory. It sounds good. It sounds like everybody's a winner. It sounds like everybody's a participant. Wrong. God is a jealous God. He is a holy God. There is none like him. And we're going to do an episode upcoming about God because he deserves all the worship from all the creatures that exist because he created them all. So they are all in a position that they owe them their worship. Which is what it says here at the end. It says, and not holding fast to the head being God, it's capitalized in the scripture, from whom all of the body, nursing it together by joints and ligament, grows with the increase that is from God. So it's you're worshiping angels. It's what we we're talking about instead of holding to the head. In other words, instead of keeping to the lead or keeping to that, which you should be kept to, you know, that, which you owe because everything comes from him. And that's just what the second half of this scripture is talking about saying you're worshiping angels instead of keeping to the head, just to draw clarity to the idea that no matter what angel you're worshiping, just like John in heaven who fell before a, righteous angel it's still something besides god and ergo a sin so you can't say oh well it's a godly angel so if i'm worshiping the angel he's not going to be taking on worship for himself right he's going to give it to god no you're the one doing the giving and just like with john the angel saying whoa 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 whoa, dude stop dude stop you're going to get both of us in trouble knock it off right there's that immediate correction there is there's that immediate rebuke of that of that activity Another thing that we need to note about angels is that God commands the angels. Right. We don't command the angels. We know about the story whenever Peter, he gets a little overzealous, he gets ahead of the schedule here and what's going on, and Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He just gets through praying. All of a sudden, here comes the 
the armed forces, if you will, the priests, the Sanhedrin, the, the soldiers, they're showing up to apprehend Christ, to take him into custody, to try him, to execute him, ultimately going to the cross. And immediately Peter draws a sword out and he takes a swing at those that are trying to apprehend Christ. Now, Peter tries to split the dude right down the middle from his head all the way down to the ground. And he misses and he chops the guy's ear off. So Jesus goes over, picks up the ear, puts it back on the guy's head and heals it. <laughs> it's just, a, right. I don't know why I laugh, but this is so, that's Christ. He's like, I got this. <laughs> picks up the ear, puts it on the dude's head. And then here's the important part of the episode tonight, going, getting back to angels. And he says to Peter, put your sword in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? That's just like what Adam just said. The whole point was that he was going to go to the cross. That's the objective here. The objective is not to fight and slaughter these people coming, this mob, this armed crowd coming to apprehend Christ. That's not the objective. The objective was not to lay waste to these people and then continue on journeying through the land. The objective, we know, was that Christ is going to the cross and it's immediately, it's hours away. Right. And Peter tries to get in the way of this. Jesus fixes the problem, literally puts the ear back on the guy's head and then he says, don't you know, I can pray to my father and then call down 12 legions of angels. You want to talk about going to war? Right. I can do that. Put your sword away. That's cute, Peter. Put your sword away. That's nothing. I can bring down angels to lay waste to the empire. He's saying, but I'm going to the cross. So even that, in a way, could be a temptation to Christ of saying, you know what? I'm taking revenge now. Forget the cross. I'm tired of dealing with you. You think I'm playing around? Here are my angels. Now what? I could see from a fleshly desire, you would probably want to do that, but he stays focused, right. stays the course to go to the cross. And again, the point of tonight's episode in this spiritual warfare discussion is that our warfare is not against the flesh and blood. And we're going to talk about that in personal spiritual warfare. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. And so it's not about starting to cut these people's heads off with your sword. It's about the objective of God. In this particular moment, I'm going to the cross. That's Christ's position. I'm going to the cross. We're not going to interrupt that with angels or with your sword. I'm going to the cross. And so then he mentions these 12 legions. And there's this discussion. Well, why 12? And, and what's in a legion? And some people say, oh, well, it was a legion for each one of the disciples minus Judas. But Jesus gets a legion too. So there's 12. To, like, I don't know. I mean, that's all... It's interesting. 12 is the number of government. We see that 12 tribes of Israel and things of that nature, the 12 disciples, whatever. I don't know. I'm just saying that he said 12 legions. That's a specific number. That's what it is. I don't know. I've always read that as just a number, right? Like a commander in the military, be like, I'll bring 50 units in here and blah, blah. You know, you're just shooting from the hip. Also with that, you have the situation of, um, with demons, also we had the um, the people that were demon possessed, 
And when Christ says, what's your name? He says, legion, for we are many. In other words, there's a legion of demons in this one guy. And now Christ is saying, I can bring 12 legions down. Like, so you see this, there's a militaristic alignment with angels. Hey, I can bring 12 legions down, which is something they would know because they're occupied by Rome, who is bringing in legions of soldiers. So it's kind of a, a Roman statement of a legion of soldiers. So they know this. They know this terminology. They know what this looks like. So that's how I've always seen it as a representation of I can bring in 12 companies of soldiers or of angels, if you will. I can bring in 12 of them, march them up around here. The city of Jerusalem doesn't have that many Romans. You want to be freed from Rome? I can just blow right through here and free us from Rome tonight. But what does it do about the sin, Peter? It doesn't fix the sin. It just takes care of Rome. Then there'll be another Babylon or there'll be another Germania or there'll be something else. There'll be the Greeks. Somebody else will come and somebody else will take Jerusalem, the Muslims, and the sin problem will still be there. That's not what we're dealing with. We're dealing with sin tonight. Right. And just to be clear on that very point, you could lay waste to this whole crew. And then whenever you die, you bust hell wide open because there was no atonement for sin. But we sure... We sure got them dudes that one night. We showed those Romans. Yeah, so there's that element that is a very obvious point. Again, Christ is going to the cross. I do believe there is a meaning of why he said 12 angels. I don't feel comfortable or or dogmatic in my own understanding to say this is exactly what Christ was referring to, but I think there was a reason why he said 12, and I don't know why. It's hard for me to think that Jesus was shooting from the hip. Uh, he just flippantly said 12. I think there's something to it. I don't know if this is what it would take to completely wipe out you know, all of the, the demonic entities in the spiritual realm in that area or globally uh, with 12 legions. And we're going to get to, uh, we're going to mention upcoming here just in a few minutes, but what is the capability of one angel? You know, so you have 12 legions. So we're talking thousands of angels, right? Thousands. Um, probably 12,000 at a minimum, but 12,000 angels, but thousands of angels and the capability of just one of those angels. And you then measure that against human capability. One angel can lay waste to tens of thousands of people. Right. That There's no competition there. So these 12 legions of angels, the capability of the angels, I'm sure these would be warring angels, he is professing the kingdom that he commands. You even go back to whenever he's being tried and he's asked, Christ is asked whenever he's about to go to the cross. He says, these people call you a king. Is this true? And he goes, my kingdom's not of this world. Right. So he didn't deny that he's not a king and of a kingdom, but he was saying that, hey, I'm not coming for your position. I'm not coming for the Roman Empire. My kingdom is not of this world. It's the superior kingdom. It's the kingdom above all kingdoms. And he's professing openly that he is the king of kings. He commands the armies of heaven. He commands the angels. And this is a fact. And so we talk about spiritual warfare. And I guess it'd be good to mention here that there were all the angels. And of all the angels, a third fell. Right. That leaves twice as many on the good side, 
just to keep things proportionate. Plus the ability to create more at any time. <laughs> that, that is like the... That's, that's kind a, of the ultimate superpower. That's the Trump card, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I, I can create more if I want to. So but, you go ahead. Okay, so to go with what you were just saying about the power of any one individual angel. So in Second Samuel in 24, starting in verse 10. So what happened here, let me give you the, the backstory. The backstory is God's people are not supposed to be counted. You don't take a census of God's people if you're, when you're the king because then you might be tempted to weigh the cost and say, oh, how many men do I have? How many fighting men versus just trusting God that when God tells you to go to war, you just go to war and trust that he would do it. So because of that, you, you don't count God's people. David knows this. He's the king here. He knows you don't count God's people, but he does. He counts God's people anyway. And so here in verse 10, it says, and David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now, when David arose in the morning and the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time. From Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men of the people died. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, It is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aranah, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aranah the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. Now Aranah looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. And Aranah went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Then Aranah said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you and build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Aranah said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice and threshing implements and the yokes of the oxen for wood. 
All these, O king, Aranah has given to the king. And Aranah said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. Then the king said to Aranah, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. Now there's a ton of things to pull out of this. So let's start pulling stuff out of this. So one, David sinned, but because he's the king over the people, God said, your lands, you're the king. What do you want me to do to you? David said, let it be against me and my father's house. Now this is David whom his line must hold the Messiah. So when he says that God returns with, okay, go and build an altar. Then God could have wiped down David and wiped down his line. And we saw that in Exodus when we talked about in obscure Bible stories, how God just opened up the earth for people had sinned and swallowed their whole family. He could have wiped him out. But that wasn't God's design. That wasn't the plan. It's like, I need David in his house. So that's step one. Also with this, it says God sent a plague. And then it says the angel that was plaguing the people. So when God sends something, even a plague, which you're like, oh, this is, you know, coming after our flesh and our blood. It's killing people. It's still an angel. In fact, in the NIV translation of the Bible, the angel is stretching out a sword, not his hand. But it says he's going from Dan to Beersheba. So he's in the outer lands working his way toward Jerusalem. And as he gets to Jerusalem, God says, stop there. He says he relents the destruction. So he pauses the angel. David looks out and sees it. And he says, bring this against me, not against my people. What have they done? They've done nothing. And then God says, go and build an altar at the threshing floor, which is where the angel stopped. And so you have this picture because David looks out and sees the angel. So as he's going to the threshing floor, he sees the angel standing in the sky waiting with a plague hand, if you will. In other words, he's got the pestilence. He has the judgment of God, which you see reoccurring in Revelation um, when you're pouring out bowls of judgments and opening seals of judgments and blowing trumpets of judgments. The angel has the judgment of God standing in the sky above the threshing floor at the threshold of Jerusalem. And David sees this, falls before God and says, not the people, me, I'll take it. And God says, go and build an altar to atone for what you did. And when David gets there, this is a little bit of a side note. You see the fear of God, not only because you're looking at a, a judgment in the form of an angel who is striking down 70,000 men. But just the fact that he knows who sent the angel and he knows what the angel's capable of. You know, we're talking about a minute ago, the Romans, what will 12 legions of angels do? One legion just killed 70,000 men and they didn't have a chance. It's just judgment. So he's got that fear of God in him so much so that when he gets to the threshing floor, he says, this is what I got to do. And the guy who owns the place is like, take it. He said, nope, I will not take anything. I will not offer anything to God that didn't cost me. This is my fault and it's going to cost me something. <laughs> yeah. That's a very poignant piece there in this whole story is that, that David is recognizing 
how close he came to losing the entire nation or kingdom of Israel. He's the king. It almost cost him the capital of Jerusalem. Right. It was that close. And so whenever you, you read through this, God is holy, violating his law, violating his command is sin. The wages, the price of sin is death every time. It's condemnation and it's absolute. There's really no bargaining with God. It's obedience. It's repentance. That's it. And so in this moment, David has the healthy fear of the Lord now. Right. <laughs> One angel is laying waste to the land of Israel. One angel. And this is a perfect story to fit in with these angels. They're commanded by God. They have tremendous power in comparison to mankind. And this is a situation where the angel of God is striking down and laying waste to the, to the people of God. Right. It's not like this is an angel laying waste to wicked people, so to speak. I mean, everybody has sinned and needs a savior, so I'm not overlooking that doctrinal truth. I'm saying that this is God's covenant people. Like you said, he's preserving the lineage to get to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And here we have this angel just laying waste to the people that are supposed to be bearing the Messiah in the coming generations. There's no bargaining with the Lord. There's no different strokes for different folks, so to speak. You come against God, you're dealing with his wrath. Right. And angels are commanded by God, and they take part in that judgment, in that wrath. And here we see it even on God's people. I want to cliff notes, if you will, this next story. We don't want, it's a lot of reading. It's a few chapters. But so in the story of Balaam in Numbers, this is what's happening. The Israelites have left Egypt, and they are on the move, coming out of the desert finally into the promised land. And King Balak sees them coming from afar, and he sends for Balaam. Now, here's an interesting thing in this story. Balaam is a man of God. He's a prophet, yet he was not with the nation of Israel in Egypt. He was still back in the promised land, kind of living a solo life. And he and King Balak have had run-ins in the past, and the king knows him as a servant of God and that he has some kind of ability to interpret or, you know, or to curse things. And so Balak sends for Balaam and he sends men. He says, go get him. And they come and they say, hey, the king wants you to come and curse this people that's coming up because he's afraid that they're going to dethrone him. And Balaam says, stay here. Let me go up and let me consult with God. And he goes and talks with God and God says, no, you will not curse those people. I have blessed those people. Those are my people. So he goes back and he sends the men back and says, I can't do it. The king says, dude, get him up here. Go back, get him. Tell him I'll give him anything. I'll esteem him. I'll, I'll give him anything. So they come back and they're like, man, the king's going to give you anything. And he says, let me talk to God. And God tells him the second time, okay, if the men are demanding it of you, then go with them. But you do not say a word that I do not tell you to say. And Balaam says, okay. And he gets up the next morning, he gets on his donkey and he leaves with the men. Knowing that the king wants him to curse these people, God told him not to curse. So it's a, it's a failed trip. And he even told them when he sent back to the king, I cannot say anything the Lord does not tell me to say. That's his disclaimer. I can't say anything the Lord tells me not to say. But when they leave, it says God's anger stirs with him because he's going with his people knowing that he can't say anything. You know, it's like you should have just stayed home. 
So he sends an angel and the angel lands in the road ahead of them. His donkey sees it and turns off into the field. And so he gets off the donkey, beats the donkey. You know, just beats it. Like, what's wrong with you? Get back on the road, man. And so the angel moves ahead to a, to a more narrow area. And the donkey sees it and he's between these walls and he presses up tight against this wall and crushes Balaam's foot. And so he beats the donkey again. So then a third time the angel's there and he's in just the tightest little corridor. There's no going around him. And so the donkey just lays down and when he lays down to Balaam's just beating the donkey. Like what is wrong with you? And then it says, God opens the mouth of the donkey and the donkey speaks. It says, I've been your donkey for how long? When have I ever behaved this way? It's amazing because Balaam doesn't even flinch. He's like, never, you've never behaved this way. What's wrong with you? And he's like that man. And he turns around, there's the angel and the angel's like, surely I would have killed you. The donkey saved you. And then it puts that again, fear of God in Balaam, that God's not playing around. So here's the really interesting thing about this story. And just to conclude the story from there, Balaam goes to the king. He shows him the Israelites coming in and he says, please curse him. He prays to God on three different occasions. He says, please curse him. He prays to God and instead he blesses him. Um, and the king just gets livid with him. Like, I asked you to curse him and you're, you're talking blessings. And he's like, that's all I can say. I told you before you called me, I can do nothing. The Lord doesn't tell me to do. Because if he tried cursing him, God would have struck him dead. Hence, the angel on the road just put that fear in him. If you say anything I don't tell you to, you will die. And here's the angel to prove it. He's got the sword and you need to see the blade and you need to see the fear so that you understand me. There's this really interesting happening there that God sends the angel and the angel even tells him my orders. Cause what we're talking about here is God commands the angels. The angel tells him my orders are to kill you and I will kill you. He would have killed him if the donkey had not strayed away. And so on the one hand, God sends an executioner for the man of God. And then at the other hand, God opens the eyes of the donkey to see and avoid the angel and then opens the mouth of the donkey so as to communicate the danger to then open the eyes of the man with the fear he should have. The angel, being what we're talking about tonight, would have killed Balaam, the man of God, under the orders of God because God controls them and it would not have been a sin. That's correct. So number one, Balaam was dumber than a donkey. Right. Number two, I want to read this moment right here that you were talking about. This is Numbers chapter 22, verses 31 through 33. This is the moment where there's an exchange whenever the angel of the Lord is talking to Balaam. It says, Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to stand against you because your way is perverse before me. And that me is God, capital, capital M, me. Right. Because angels always speak what they're told to speak. They don't just ad lib. That's correct. It's a message. The donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, Surely I would also have killed you by now and let her live. So 
This angel is now revealed to Balaam, and now Balaam is looking at the very one whom God has sent to kill him if he disobeys. Again, God commands the angels, and they will do exactly what they're sent to do. But I just wanted to read that little part of how direct this communication is. There's no, there's no funny business. There's no innuendos. There's no hints at anything. This angel straight up like, I'm about to kill you. Don't even try me. I'm telling you what I'm here to do. I have this sword. You take one more step, you're done. It's over. And it, there's no negotiating with this angel. There's no like, oh man, come on, let me convince you to deviate from your mission, your objective, your marching orders. There's no negotiation here. It's the deal. That's it. It's the deal. Well, and then also look at this. What do you not see? You do not see a glorious, radiating angel of light. You don't see that. It doesn't seem to be too large of an angel because he's not necessarily intimidating when Balaam turns to him. It doesn't say Balaam saw the angel and fell prostrate like it does in Daniel. It says Balaam saw the angel and then bowed his head. It was very underwhelming of an angel, yet standing there with a drawn sword telling Balaam directly, I would have killed you. And Balaam has, is now thinking about it. What could I have done? Nothing I could have done would have prevented this. He was veiled to me. I didn't know where he was. I didn't know he was here. Nothing I could have done could have prevented this angel from executing me. And yet, when you see the angel and the angel's revealed, it's not even the most intimidating angel you see in Scripture. Again, in the demons episode, we talked about Daniel 10 when the angel appeared, which we said was also not the biggest angel there could be because he couldn't even win a fight. He had to call in Michael that angel, which was more glorious in his appearance, radiating glory. Daniel fell as though dead and the angel had to touch and strengthen him. You don't see that here. You see a withheld angel, right? And I don't want to overlook the part where it says, and he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. And I think there is a moment of fear, fear struck Balaam, but you're correct in the description of the angel is not this overwhelmingly powerful, all-striking type figure that we read about. Right. So again, God commands these angels. There's no negotiating with them. They're going to execute the mission exactly, precisely the way that God had said. He made the order and that's it. And it doesn't matter if these angels are coming against God's people or against wicked, or it doesn't matter. They're going to do what they're told to do. And we go to the one who commands the angels. We go to the creator through Christ. And I think that's key. So this was a good little section about angels and who's calling the shots. It's not us. It's God. It's not even the angels. It's God. Right. Well, they're beings of service made, designed to serve, and they serve at God's pleasure the way God wants to use them. So you may have a messenger angel who suddenly draws a sword because that's what he was needed for at this time. Although I don't know why you would because there's so many angels that, I mean, surely you can use another one, but doesn't mean anything. And we're going to keep going here and see a few more types. Okay. So moving into another section here about angels, there are many scriptures throughout the word where Angels are interacting with humans, and we've already kind of read some of this. There's a common thread a lot of times whenever you see angels interacting with mankind. They're just beyond the veil, as we like to say, the veil of 
our realm of the five senses. And sometimes they come in and out of that, that veil to whenever we can see and interact or hear them or talk or whatever. And I'm talking, when I say we, I'm talking humans throughout all of history. And we have the Bible, which gives us this record. And there's one that's really interesting that I want to read this passage. It's in second Kings chapter six and it's verses 14 through 23. And I just want to read it and then, and then we can kind of speak to it here. And this is whenever the Syrian army was trying to make war against Israel. I'm going to pick up a little bit lower in in the story. Again, verse 14. Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with the horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness, according to the word of Elisha. Now Elisha said to them, This is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria. So it was, when they had come to Samaria, that Elijah said, Lord, open the eyes of these men, that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and there they were, inside Samaria. Now when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? But he answered, You shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you have taken captive with your sword and your bow? Set food and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Then he prepared a great feast for them, and after they ate and drank, he sent them away, and they went to their master. So the bands of the Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. So there's a few points here. Number one, you have this Syrian army surrounding the city in Israel. And if you look at things from a fleshly perspective in this situation, there might appear to be a reason to fear that we're going to be defeated, that we are doomed. It's done. It's over. And Elisha said to the young man, don't fear. There are more with us than with them. And then he, of course, prayed to God that this young man's eyes would be opened. And then all of a sudden, whoom, the veil was lifted for this young man to see these angels and their chariots. Now we have this war equipment with the angels. And then all of a sudden, things shift. It's like they were there all along. They were with us all along. And God allowed this young man to see God's provision, that he is protecting his people. He's not going to let anything happen to his people beyond his will. And so whenever he sees this, then when this, the story moves forward and we see the tactic that occurred where God blinded the enemy, allowed Elijah to take them away to some other area that was meaningless, and then the threat was over. Now, then the people of God, the Israelites, wanted to take vengeance on them and kill them and slay them and 
the command from God was no, the command is not to kill them. The threat's over. God delivered that threat from our situation. And so we're going to give them food. We're going to give them drink. They're going to be on their way and they're not going to be a threat you know, any longer. And that's the standing command. And so this whole method is not a method that seems orthodox to us in the way of war. It's like, now we have the upper hand, let's annihilate. God is with them. It doesn't matter what you think, what you believe, how you assess the situation. God has his angels in the key positions to protect his people at all times. And he's not going to execute warfare the way that you think conventional warfare ought to be fought in order to bring you peace or security or protection for whatever ministry or area that you're operating in in this world. So it's very interesting. There's multiple things that we can pick out of this story, but angels are beyond the visible realm. And there are times, as we read in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, where these veils are lifted and we can see into these other realms and they've always been there. They've always existed and they're involved with God's will in our world. Look at what we've seen so far. We saw a single angel threatening Balaam, which struck absolute fear in him because he realized how little he could do to stop it. Um, we saw an angel with David that was laying waste to 70,000 men just by the judgment of God that he carries in his hand. And we asked the question, what can 12 legions of angels do? This is where you see what might be described as a legion of angels, an army of angels, a company of angels in chariots, like you said, warfare. And they cannot stand up to them. They don't even know they're there, like you said. But then it's not they break the veil with giant swords, kind of like we saw with the other ones, and slaying people down. They just rode in and cursed them with blindness. Blindness and call it stupidity, confusion, where they can be led to another area by not your commander. They have their own commander. They have their own ranks, yet they're struck blind and then are just mysteriously led to a completely different area and that's it. And it was delivered by God with the hand of the angels at the command of Elijah. But we asked the question, what can 12 legions of angels do whenever one, I'll call it a legion, maybe it was just a company, I don't know, but just this one group of angels took care of an entire army with literally no casualties and no real effort and then showed them mercy on the backside, or Elijah showed them mercy on the backside of, hey, they've kind of had it bad enough. We don't need to, you don't even know what they just went through. They just woke up the next morning and like, what was that? It's beyond what we can think in the way of tactics and methods. Again, I use that word of what would be the method that you would use. It's not the first thing that comes to my mind. Let's blindfold them take them to another city that, and they won't realize that they're there and then we'll feed them some food and give them some drink and let them be on their way. That's not the first right. method that comes to my mind to eliminate the threat. Well, especially not when your eyes are open and you see chariots of angels just everywhere. You get that hopped up like, this is real. That's why when they get to the other city, the kid's saying like, all right, so now we're going to kill them. Now we're going to slay them. Let's do this. Like bring in the angel swords. And he's saying, no. <laughs> there are, I mean, literally, they're blind and dumbfounded. They're literally captives. 
rules of warfare, man. Read the rules of engagement. You do not kill a prisoner. Well, and again, this goes back to God commands the angels. Right. Not a young man who's all hyped up for war now that he realizes there's angels on his side. We don't get to usurp God's authority over the angels. Like, you're here to defend me. Okay, you're my personal servant, my warfare servant, and you're going to go do what I want. Now go slay these these enemies of ours. You don't get to do that. But you do see that a lot in churches where people say, oh, we can call down 10,000 angels, and there's, you know, the Bible says there's angels at our command, and Lord, we call down the angels, and we're not allowing this, you know, this out of there. We're bringing angels against this. We are not allowing this, whatever it is that they're praying against. And they get really hopped up on that, like, come in here, angels, and take care of it for us. Like you're saying, that's not what happens. That's not our position, and that's not our ministry or position of service in God's kingdom. We don't get to order the angels around. That's, again, it's God's position to do that. Right, and you see that here. You see the kid go to Elijah, and Elijah says, God, please open his eyes. He opens his eyes. So Elijah prays to God. God commands angels. Elijah doesn't turn to the angels and say, you there, blind him. And there's an angel running down there with a hot poker sword just poking him in the eyes. That's not happening. Elijah goes to God. God commands angels. And Elijah never loses sight of the fact that he is nothing in this. He is the man in charge of protecting God's people, but he never loses sight that the way that they're protected is from God himself, not by his own power. So the pride never swells up in him because again, we call pride because of Satan. We call pride the original sin. And that's not to get tied up with Catholic original sin and all that, but just kind of the original sin that was committed was pride found in Lucifer, the first sin, if you will. But you don't see that in Elijah. Elijah is standing calmly looking at the enemy and this kid is fearful and he's like, God, open his eyes. Let him see this. Take away his fear. And he sees it. Now he's hopped up. He's, oh man, this is awesome. Look at all these angels. It's real. And then it happens exactly like this kid is not thinking. Like you said, this kid is thinking human warfare. He's thinking swords and shields and stabbing and spears and poking and blood. And Elijah is just kind of like, why would we need to do that? You have no idea what God is capable. God loves everybody. We say this all the time. God loves everybody, even though you see cases in the Bible, such as Pharaoh, where God hardens his heart and destroys him so as to accomplish God's will. He has to harden Pharaoh's heart so as to make an example of him. And so God makes an example of him. But here it's like we don't have to slay and murder everybody. Yes, there are times God commands that of them. And the Israelites are the weapon, but here the angels are the weapon and they're going to do it differently because angels are capable of doing it differently. And as a Bible trivia note, there is one verse and it's repeated in the New Testament. So Old and New Testament where it says that from God's point of view, Jacob, I have loved and Esau, I have hated. I still wrestle with how God hates Esau, but that's what the Bible says. But yeah, but you're right. God wants everyone to come to the redemptive knowledge of Christ. Right. And, but I just want to say, cause I know there's going to be someone out there like, no, it says right here, God hated Esau. And you're right. And it says in the old new Testament, but for doctrinal purposes and theology, from a standpoint of people on the planet, God loves the people and he doesn't want any of them to perish, but he will judge sin. And the wrath is going to pour out on the sin. So I want to shift into a, another area 
of the service to God that angels perform, and that is for proclamation of messages. And we're not going to go through it because a lot of people are already familiar with it, but if you go back and read the account of whenever Christ was coming into the earth for the first time, and I'm talking mainly about whenever Mary is chosen by God, is informed that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon her, and she's going to conceive Christ, there is an angel there. And she's, she's troubled at the same time she is absolutely submissive. And then Joseph needs a message of affirmation. This is of God. Because, of course, in a natural setting, this makes no sense. How can my fiance be pregnant and she wasn't uh, sleeping around on me? I mean, let's just keep it real. So an angel came to him to affirm the same message. Then we have the shepherds out in the field. All of a sudden, angels proclaim in the heavenly realm. This glorious worship comes upon the scene. Angels are there declaring and worshiping Emmanuel, God with us. God comes to the earth that in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And then you look down at John chapter one, verse 14, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among man. This is Christ. And there are these angels proclaiming this. And there's another note. Whenever we see Christ come back to the earth again, guess who's involved? Angels. There will be the the shout of the voice of the archangel at the rapture and the trump of God. That will occur just before the moment of the rapture of the church. We look at the book of Revelation, the unfolding of all of the 21 judgments, specifically the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls. These are angels that are delivering these set, designed components of God's wrath on the earth just prior to him coming back down in glory with the heavenly armies, with angels, to establish his kingdom. So angels are proclaiming these messages. Angels are heralding the coming of the king. And so these angels, throughout the New Testament especially, in our future... These angels are all over the place. So again, I don't want to go in and read every time this happens, but it's all throughout. Whenever you see these major events coming, there's this message that's being proclaimed by these angels. And again, we're talking about, we call them messenger angels. A lot of times you see Gabriel in this role. Well, and then also you have a really funny account of angels at the resurrection of Christ. When Mary comes to the tomb and there's an angel sitting on the rock and he's like, Hey, what you doing? And she's like, I've come to find Jesus. Like, where is he? Did you move him? He's really snarky. He's like, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Like, did he not say he would rise? Like, literally, this angel is just hanging out in the tomb just to tell Mary, like, hey, you should really go find the guys, you know, the disciples. You should go find them and let them know that everything he said, he that's what he's doing. Today's day three. So he's not here anymore, and I'm just kind of hanging out waiting for you to show up so I could tell you to go tell them, and you know, he'll find you later. But you have this angel just hanging out in the, just in the most casual of setting. You know what I mean? Yeah, and that's a very good point. I feel bad for overlooking the resurrection where the angels are there because I talk about the birth and I talk about the second coming and the yeah, rapture. Yeah, you should. Yeah, <laughs> so I feel bad about that, but you're right. The angels roll away the stone. The angels 
say, why do you seek the living among the dead? The angels are there again at the ascension of Christ. Remember? Right. Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into the heavens? Go, like go do the great commission, go make disciples. For in like manner in which you saw the Messiah ascend, in like manner he will return. Angels proclaiming, angels proclaiming, angels proclaiming. This is a very interesting way or method or tactic that God has his angels come and proclaim to mankind with absolute authority these truths, these events. It's like this seal of certifying, this seal of God, if you will. Authenticity. Uh, thank you. Authenticity, yes, this is, thus saith the Lord. Right. So you have in the book of Exodus this time where Moses is on the mountain with God and he says to God, I want to see you. And God says, you can't see me, but go hide behind that rock and I'll put my hand over you and then I'll pass over you and you can look at my back through my hand from behind a rock. And even that we talked about was so intense that Moses, like Moses's countenance, which is the appearance of his face radiated with the glory of God to the point he had to wear a veil for days until the glory of God finally wore off on him. It's not even a described amount of time, just a period of time he had to be veiled because he was blinding to look at. And it turned his hair white and just absolutely crippled and aged him. That's what the glory of God does. So when God needs to speak to a person, he doesn't show up directly. And the burning bush thing, strictly for Moses, kind of a whole situation with Moses where he's like, look, take your shoes off. It's holy ground. Yeah, it's totally me, God. So it seems to be easier to just send an angel. It's like, okay, they're glorious, but not so much that it's going to kill you. And when you see an angel, it's totally undeniable that it's from God. Obviously, this is of God, and I should listen to what this guy's saying. And then so slightly changing another aspect that we want to look at about angels, we talked about these proclamations and messages and largely revolving around events of Christ, his birth, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, the rapture, his return. So those are huge moments with, like you said perfectly, the authenticity of God is stamped via the messaging from angels. There's some other components in there, and specifically to Christ, where we see angels ministering to Jesus during his time of trial, during his time of process, decision-making, of going to the cross. So this is things that angels did directly for Christ, and the main one that I wanted to, to highlight was whenever Jesus was in the garden, he was praying. His disciples would not stay awake to pray. He gets onto them, can't you stay and pray with me? So literally, Satan put a sleepy spell on all the men out in the field, okay? They got drowsy. They couldn't do it. I'm just kind of ad-libbing there for fun, but you know what I'm saying? They're falling asleep. They can't labor right. in the spirit with Christ. Christ is sweating great drops of blood, the Bible says, and he's agonizing. Lord, if it be your will, remove this cup from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He's made the decision to go to the cross. And then at that point, it says, then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And so we read this as he's, again, then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. So 
in this high moment, we have this action. We don't know exactly what happened. We don't know exactly how the angels strengthened him, ministered to him, but it happened. And I just wanted to highlight that, right. that there's a little piece in there that is something where God had his angels go and tend to Christ in this very heavy moment. And I just wanted to point out that one piece, that one component where we see this at a high moment in Christ's journey while he was here the first time. Right. So moving from that, we also see angels used um, repeatedly for judgments. And we already talked about a minute ago, the judgment of David, um, the angel is sent to plague the people, kill 70,000 people, and then God stays his hand and David has to make a sacrifice. So the angel is exacting judgment in the same way we were just talking about how through the book of Revelation, you have the seven seals, the seven bowls, the seven trumpets. You have all these judgments. In fact, I had a, I had a, uh, a picture, if you will, or a poster in my youth room when I was a youth minister of the chronology of Revelation. And there was this picture of an angel with a bowl and he was pouring it out on the earth. And it was obviously representing the wrath of God that he's pouring out. Um, and it was a very telling, although it was a simple black and white look, almost like a hand sketch, very telling imagery that you see it pouring out. And so you, so you see angels used for judgment. We've already talked about that, but the easiest place to start is in Genesis. You have the, the story of Genesis. You have the creation story and Adam and Eve sin. They eat from the tree. They're not supposed to because the devil tempted Eve into eating and she gives it to her husband and he eats. Then they're hiding. And God says, why are you hiding? And says, because I hid because I was naked. He said, who told you you were naked? You've been eating the fruit I told you not to eat. And he says, the woman you gave me gave me the fruit and I ate it. He says, woman. And she says, oh, no, no, no. The snake talked me into eating it. He says, oh, snake. And so you have this judgment. Men, you will labor for the ground to produce food for you. Women, you will have hard labor bearing children, painful labor bearing children. And then he curses the snake, which is a little bit, again, kind of like we talked about with the king of Tyre. It's a little bit he's cursing the snake and a little bit he's cursing the devil. So the snake itself, he says, you will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust. And then talking to Satan, he says, you and the woman will have enmity and her son, you'll strike his heel, but he'll crush your head. And so you have this literal and prophetic statement mixed together, which is really interesting. But then they're banned from the garden, which is where we're getting to. They're banned from the garden. And it says that there is a flaming sword set in front of the gate to block the way so that they can't ever go back into the garden. And so from here, if you want my personal interpretation, the garden, in my opinion, is removed from the planet and hidden, if you will, into a spiritual realm, spiritual dimension, however you want to say this. Or a better way to see it is that the garden is still here at a high point, obviously. And when they left, they exited the spiritual realm into the realm that we exist in. And the way was closed off, guarded by a fiery sword, and they cannot get back into it or we cannot get back into it. Yeah, and so just to be clear, the moment where we see this is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. It's a cherubim that's named. We have a flaming sword, and it is banishment. It is this judgment. Judgment has been executed, and this is no longer accessible to mankind. And that is a huge judgment, which now calls for the second Adam, as we read about in Romans, which is Christ, 
through one man, sin entered into mankind, and through one man, the Christ, sin will be forgiven. So it's very interesting. But yes, this is an execution of judgment. And again, it's cherubim that execute this judgment against Adam and Eve directly, and of course against all mankind, because that's whenever now mankind is born into sin. Moving to another story in Genesis, Genesis chapter 19, um, you have these angels bringing warning to Lot about Sodom and Gomorrah. And God allows there to be a warning. He allows right. an opportunity to take shelter, I guess, is the best way. It's really get out of the way. And these angels in this story, we're not going to read it because it's so long, but again, I'm letting you know it's Genesis chapter 19. You can check it out. These angels look like mankind. They look like men. They look normal. And they looked handsome. And we know this because of what happened. But whenever these men showed up, or what they thought was men, the people of the city saw them and they wanted to have sex with them. And so Lot is completely thrown in all different types of directions mentally. You have these angels coming in to say, this is about to be laid waste, get out. Then you have the people of the city saying, we want to sleep with those men. Lot's like trying to give up other people of his family. Here, take the women, take the girls. And just so many things are going on. But the bottom line is these angels came in, they warned them to leave. God gave Lot mercy in this story. The angels gave specific instructions. It wasn't, hey, see if you can turn this around. See if you can maybe get some people to start straightening out their act, to please God, live more righteously. No, this is very specific instructions. Get out. It's going to happen. You have no time other than just to get out. And the angels said they would be the ones to destroy the city of Sodom. So again, these angels are given a mission. They have set instructions. They're told to warn Lot and his family. And they are also told that you will destroy this city. And so angels execute judgment. And we've been referring to especially the book of Revelation, right? the 21 judgments. Oh, and not to forget, whenever Christ comes back, we talked about this at the return of Christ in our Bible prophecy episode, as soon as Christ comes back to the earth, there's a sword that comes out of the mouth of Christ it strikes down the armies of the Antichrist. Immediately, Michael comes down, or the angel comes down with the chain. He apprehends Satan. He binds Satan, literally in chains, and throws Satan to the abyss for a thousand years. So again, another judgment being executed in our future. And again, these angels have these assignments, and they will do it, and they're given authority to do it. They don't get a mission or marching orders from God, and then they can't do it. With the commissioning of the order comes the authority and capability to do it. And they do it every time. And they do it exactly as they're told. It's very interesting how this works. So previous to this in this story, Abraham is speaking with God, and God is saying, I'm, I'm going to destroy Sodom. And Abram says, well, what if, there's, you know, what if there's 50 men there? And God says, 50 righteous men there. And God says, okay, well, if there's 50 righteous, then I'll spare it. And he says, well, what if there's five less than 50? You know, what if there's 40? 
He's like, if there's 40, I'll spare. And then he does 30. He does 20, all the way down to 10. And God says, if there's 10 righteous men in the walls of Sodom, I'll spare the city. Here's the problem. There were no righteous men in Sodom with the exception of Lot. Obviously in his family, but biblically we're talking about just the men. He's the husband, therefore he's the head of the household. So everybody in his house is judged by him. So he's one and the only one. So pausing right there, going back to what we were saying earlier about David, David is judged by his heart regardless of his sin. He was a righteous man by his heart. Equally here, Lot is a righteous man in his heart, but he's the only one. Everyone in the city around him has been given into depravity and given into their sins. And there is no desire in them to please God any longer. They're entirely hedonistic. And what do I want? That's what we're going to do. And so God tells Abraham, if there's 10 there, I'll spare it, knowing that there's not 10 there. But it's just for the sake of appeasing Abraham. So then the angels go into the city knowing that they're just going to extract Lot, just to pull the one out. So they go to the city. Lot sees them at the gate. He meets them at the gate, says, my lords, come with me. You should not stay in the square. Come to my house. And so they, okay, and they come to his house, and then these guys are beating down the door. Um, Lot goes out, and like you said, he's throwing his daughters out there to him, and they're like, no, and they're pressing him and kicking the door in. The angels pull him in. They shut the door. They blind the men and the men exhaust themselves trying to kick the door down, but they just can't. And they tell Lot, y'all need to leave right now, tonight. And do not look back because judgment's coming. It's kind of that moment of like, you tell him I'm coming and hell's coming with me. So, and then just to fast forward, they leave. His wife looks back and she's turned to a pillar of salt because she looks on the judgment of God. And there's another passage that we read about that's very famous in the Old Testament as well, and it's whenever the Hebrews are captive as slaves in the empire of Egypt. We know the story. Moses is ordained by God to go before Pharaoh, commanding to Pharaoh and the authority of God to let God's people go, set them free. We know what happens. There's these sequential judgments. Angels are used here. But the ultimate one is at the end. The 10th plague is the angel of death, which comes and wherever the blood is not found on the doorpost, the firstborn is taken. The firstborn is killed. Of everything. Of everything. Yeah, all animals, households. And of course, we know that Pharaoh had a firstborn son and he was taken. And this is whenever Pharaoh finally relents to let the Jews go He lets them basically plunder the Egyptian empire, taking gold and treasure out with them. And then we know that Pharaoh gets enraged and rounds up the army to go after them. And we know this is where they're drowned in the the Red Sea. The point is, is that there's an angel there in this judgment who was given command and authority and did so by God to kill the firstborn of all living things, basically, in the Egyptian empire, in the land. And even that, that included... The Hebrews, if the Hebrews didn't put the blood on the post, they were going to partake of the same judgment. And this is where we see this figure, this character, if you will, the death angel that's doing this. Right. With that, you go back to David in Second Samuel. You see one angel show up with the judgment of God, and he's striking down God's people in accordance to what God told him to do. In the same way here, you have an angel who shows up on the scene 
under God's order of if there's no blood on the door because they had to kill a spotless lamb, drain the blood, and then paint the blood around the door of their house. If there's no blood, you take the firstborn. And it's literally in the greatest terms, a precise strike because Pharaoh has a son and he, I have my first son right now. Like he's four months old as we record just over. He's, you know, in the next room, love him incredibly would be heartbroken. If anything happens to him in that same mindset, something happens to the firstborn, not just in Pharaoh's house, but in all of Egypt. Now the Egyptians are in mourning. They're crying. They don't care about their slaves anymore. They care about their children that they just lost. They care about all of the livestock they just lost because, oh, you don't have a son yet? Don't worry. I'm going to take your sheep. I'm going to take your cattle. I'm going to take your goats, like whatever. I'm going to take all that too. So don't think you got out of this just because you don't have kids. Everybody suffers something. And all of Egypt is mourning. All of Egypt is wailing including Pharaoh. It's that precise strike right to the heart so that when Moses shows up the next morning, Pharaoh's like, man, just go. Just get out of here. I I can't argue with you anymore. I can't do this with you anymore. What more do you want from me? Just go. Take it and go. And it shows the precision by which God executes his will. The first nine plagues, more or less just God flexing muscle. He's making them suffer, but he knows that they're not going to give up. God knows the future here. He knows what's going to happen. He knows what it's going to take, and he knows this precise strike is coming, and he knows that it's going to establish the Passover. He knows the entire future of this, and it's by his will. And this angel has one job to do and does it flawlessly. And to recap exactly what you just said, regardless of the different types of activities, jobs, mission, service that these angels have. We went through them in this episode tonight. And just to recap, some of the things that we tried to compartmentalize what we identify angels doing and the roles that they're fulfilling, we talked about, number one, there's different types of angels. Number two, we don't worship angels. We worship God. Number three, God commands the angels and only God. Number four, we see different ways in which angels interact with humans just beyond the veil. Sometimes we're allowed to see them. Sometimes God reveals you know, the spiritual realm to mankind at certain points in history. Number five, these angels bring proclamation and messages at key moments yeah. of authenticity. Number six, we see very specific things that angels had the role of ministering directly to Christ while he was here in the process of going to the cross. Number seven, we just discussed that angels fulfill God's judgment as well. So we have a departing thought or some departing thoughts with a couple of verses here. And I just wanted to read these two verses as we close. Hebrews chapter 13, verses one and two Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some may have unwittingly entertained angels. So they can be around us and you won't even know it in our regular day. And then Psalms 34, 
verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. And I want to interject something that maybe you've been waiting for us to talk about this entire episode, and I want to talk about it right here based off of these two verses. And I also want to include, as you read Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 3, based off of what we just read right here and those other passages, again, Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 3, I personally believe, number one, that angels are given authority and charge over individual churches. And number two, yes, I do believe that God orders and commands angels to be guardians of his people because it says it right here. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. So in essence, from this description right here in Psalms 34, verse 7, that to me would be guardian angels. Recapping everything that we just talked about, we don't try to engage our angels and order and command our angels and call them down and bring more in and, and, send, right. and send them out. That's coming from God. We go to the Lord. We read his word. We seek to do his word. We have a healthy fear of the Lord. And then the Lord takes care of all these things. He's going to ordain ministers. He's going to set up families, set up churches. He's going to make sure that all of those things are being done within those institutions of the family of his churches. And those angels will be involved just beyond the visual realm, protecting, enabling God's kingdom. Okay. So this is kind of to put things all in a concluding manner here of how does this affect you and where are angels coming into play? Do I have guardian angels? Yes, we have guardian angels as believers. Yes, there are angels that are given charge over churches of God. Hey, and while we're speaking that, the churches that are doing false doctrine and getting into the cults that pretend to be Christians or think they're Christians, they're having demons involved with their situation, even unknowingly right. calling upon another Christ. Let them be accursed. We opened up with that. So we need to understand and distinguish holy versus fallen angels. So yes, I do believe there are guardian angels. And yes, I do believe that angels are given charge over every congregational family that we call churches, church families, that God is being glorified, that his word is being taught, that these are truly his believers, congregations of his believers. And yeah, he does give angels charge over them to protect that particular ministry family. Again, this is kind of bringing things to a close, having some concluding thoughts. And I think these are two excellent scriptures that let us know that angels are still involved with God's will in our lives today. Right. So with that said, you can go back to the first episode of this series, which was discernment. And then from there, we went to Satan. And from Satan, we went to demons. From demons, we went to discussing the war in heaven between angels and demons in Revelation 12. Tonight we have discussed angels. Next we're going to talk about God, which is a subject we probably should have hit sooner, but for some reason it landed here and it really, really fits here. And so I'm very happy that we didn't hit it previous till now because I think it's going to be fantastic personally. From God, we're going to move into talking about spiritual warfare and how all of these things really play in and add up in your life. And then from that we're going to get into the really weird stuff finally that we've been wanting to get to. So 
as the weird stuff is approaching, I would absolutely encourage everybody to tell a friend, tell an enemy, just tell everybody, share the series. It's going to be one of those really interesting things coming up that if nothing else, it's going to be fun to talk about and just, man, what did you think about that? Well, how do you feel about that? To go with that also, please do share the podcast, like the podcast. If you have iTunes and if you could rate us on the podcast, we'd appreciate it. The ratings do go a long way in making the podcast easier to find for somebody who might be looking for this kind of content. The more ratings we have, the more likely it is to appear on the search. When you search for Christian podcasts or a topic like say angels and that higher chance of being found is that many more people having an opportunity to find and hear us, which is what we feel like God has called us to do. We don't feel like God's called us to promote ourselves, but we do feel like God has called us to do everything we can to bring this content to the world where we see a need for it. So we pray constantly that God reach the people that he would reach with this podcast. And with that said, if you could like it or rate it on iTunes, it makes it easier to find. Most other platforms use the iTunes rating to also set their algorithms. So if you could help us with that, that'd be fantastic. With that said, thank you for listening. We're praying for you. Please pray for us. And God bless. Two, three, check. One, two, three, ch- 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 check. All right. You ready? The gate. Did you, so you did the gate for both of us? Yeah. Right. Bump both on one click, see what it does. Okay, it sounds pretty good right now. Cool. Good. You're listening to 108.9 KCCP with Big Philly and the Jester. <laughs> What's a sweep sweep? <laughs> All right, one more drink. Let's do this. Okay, everybody, welcome back. This is our episode on angels. We are continuing our spiritual warfare series. We are going to pick up now on the positive side, if you will, of celestial beings. So we discussed the devil, then we discussed demons, and then Stop. we just dis- discernment, Satan, all the episodes. Fine. So the moment that you start positively attributing things to them. is the moment that you're worshiping them. Well, and also, so first off, my favorite memory with this story is the church I grew up in where you and I met used to always do a lot of plays, a lot of um, like Christian theater, if you will. 
And there was a time that they did this for Easter. They did this story. Resurrection Sunday. I'm sorry. They did this for Resurrection Sunday. And I remember like people shuffling around the church trying to figure out like five minutes before they started, what are we going to do about the cutting the ear off thing? Like we practiced it, but nobody had a fake ear. Nobody was ready. And so they literally went in the supply closet and made a fake ear out of Play-Doh. And this guy had to like kind of hang it on the side of his head and just not be seen by the, you know, by anybody, like turn it away from the spotlight until they swing the sword and then, oh, like dump it on the ground. And then Jesus like picks it up and then he's trying to put it back on his head, but it's taken a while because it's Play-Doh and it just fell like, you know, six feet to the ground. And so he's just squishing it on this guy's ear. It was so funny to watch. That is a total side note. But to go with what we're talking about here tonight, um, and it's hard to recover from that story. It's pretty funny. But, um... Oh.